You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know, William Rufus King has been so forgotten and dismissed that not just do we sometimes not even know his name, mm-hmm. but his picture. Uh, if you go on the internet, very often you'll see a picture of William Rufus King that's not William Rufus King. Oh. It's actually the New York politician Fernando Wood, who looks a little bit like William Rufus King, <laughs> but they were not the same person. And certainly within the, with the passage of time and in our own time, uh, he's been not given the kind of attention he deserves. Reminder about the Patreon for My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, where you can go get extra episodes, like things we left out of the Lincoln Train podcast, things we left out of the Mechanics Institute podcast, because there was simply no time. Did Lyndon Johnson want to run in 1968 at the convention? We explore that in a large episode, the Mauve Decade, about the 1890s, many other things. It's on our Patreon site, patreon.com slash mhcbuyp. That is the letters of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, M-H-C-B-U-Y-P. William Rufus King attracted attention within the Democratic Party. He was described by peers always as an able legislator and an impressive speaker. He was elected to serve four consecutive terms as senator and earned a solid reputation as a moderate, pro-business Jacksonian Democrat. You might even say a Jeffersonian. I mean, William Rufus King got his start before the party of Jackson. He was first elected... Uh, to the U.S. House of Representatives in the the James Madison presidency. That's Thomas Balsersky. He's Associate Professor of History at Eastern Connecticut State University, and he is the author of Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King. We're going to talk to him about this interesting but obscure vice president. And from this partisan mode, I think he enters into the role that served him and suited him best in his years as a moderate, as a unionist, and as a compromiser. The interesting thing about Vice President William Rufus King is that he only has about 45 days in office. He dies April 18th, 1853. The other interesting thing to say is the only he was sworn in in a foreign country. Because of health conditions, he had to be sworn in in Havana, Cuba. He did try to make it in Washington. You know, he does get to Alabama, but doesn't arrive to Washington prior to his death, doesn't get to see Pierce as president at all, which in some ways doesn't make him a lot different from a lot of 19th century vice presidents who really never saw the president much. I think he may hold the record for the shortest term as a vice president in American history. Yeah, and uh, it's a real shame because I really think that he's useful to talk about, particularly in 
in a time when everybody's just at each other's throat politically, which is which is all times, of course, but <laughs> particularly feels it feels stronger today, is that he was just such a diplomat, such a smooth politician that a lot of people like. You give a good snapshot of who William Rufus King is politically. Mm-hmm. And the way you describe it, I have to say, it sounds really appealing uh, in, in a world of polarized politics and fracture like our own. And you also mentioned that uh, past eras of American political history were deeply polarized. Yeah, I guess all these terms would be accurate about him. Jacksonian, Democrat, Southerner, Unionist, and Moderate. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a pretty nice uh, snapshot. And it, it also captures some of his evolution. The issues change, the parties change, the players change. And yet I think there is a universal theme across American politics that there are these conciliators, these compromisers, these bridge figures who emerge between the warring sides and who are sometimes come in the most unlikely of packages. Here is William Rufus King, a lifelong Southerner mm-hmm. from a deep, a deep South state in Alabama, playing compromiser, playing moderate Democrat and unionist at a time when um, those were desperately needed qualities in Washington, D.C., William Rufus King contested Henry Clay's 1832 move to recharter the Bank of the United States, essentially early. King contested that move not because he opposed the bank, which he did not, but because he objected to Clay's political opportunism. We sometimes just think it's North versus South, but actually, for a good 25-year period, it was the political party that was the greater determinant of how one would think and vote. When as part of that controversy, Jackson ordered the removal of federal funds out of the bank and then refused to respond to inquiries from the Senate that were coming from Clay, demanding a copy of a document about this removal, the Senate took unprecedented action. And in March of 1834, they censured the president. King was among those, along with Senator Thomas Hart Benton, who launched a vigorous and ultimately successful campaign to expunge that censure from the Senate's journal. Yeah, the the figure of Andrew Jackson is is such a dividing one. I mean, the entire Whig party came into being as an anti-Jackson party. Yes, they came out of this national Republican movement, and they they consider themselves sort of successors to a different aspects of this this national party that controlled politics for a generation. But when it came down to it, was we for or against Andrew Jackson? And the anti-Jackson men had to kind of coalesce around a philosophy that uh, was greater than just this hatred of a man. And it took them a while, but they could always agree for sure that anything involving Andrew Jackson was worth fighting against. And yeah, the censure resolution was all about Jackson's conduct of the federal deposits in the Second National Bank and his improper uh, ordering of their withdrawal into the state or pet banks. And so the Whigs happened to control the Senate at the time of the of this uh, this withdrawal, and they took that as their opportunity to pass the censure. And it's also the only case, too, where presidential censure was expunged. That battle produced quite a political scene within uh, the Democratic Party because they took that on as kind of a rallying cry to defend Jackson. And I really think, you know, again, comparing it as we did earlier to our modern politics, there's a really nice comparison here to the Republican Party's response to the impeachment of President Trump and how they sort of are going and fighting against the charges in an extra political way. And I actually think had Democrats this time around pursued a censure against Trump, who knows 
uh, if a similar expunging battle. If there is uh, the midterms go in 2022 a different way, or you could see an ex- an expunging. Uh... Clay and King uh, really represent the dueling aspects, uh, quite literally, but also the dueling aspects of the two-party system of the time. This conflict, taking on Clay directly, and the dangerous tenor of the times were symbolized in the clash between the two men that took place in March 1841. The near duel between King and Clay centered around really a partisan issue. It was around uh, whom to award the printing contract and the editorship uh, of the congressional record. And it had previously been in Jacksonian hands when Martin Van Buren was president, before that Andrew Jackson. But in the transition of 1841, from Democrat to Whig, the very first Whig administration with William Henry Harrison elected, all those patronage jobs, all those spoils, we call it the spoil system, that had been passed down and doled out as a way to keep the Jacksonian coalition together, suddenly now fell into Whig hands. The Senate, under Clay's leadership for the first time, passed the control to a new Whig majority. A great battle developed over Senate printing patronage and in the process, various sort of side players in this in this world were shuffled out of Washington, and one of them was the editor of the of this uh, record, this printing contract of, of the Senate of this, the Congressional Record. And in the war of words between them, you had King defending the old editor, and you had Clay attacking it. Clay believed the Globe to be an infamous paper, and its chief editor was an infamous man. This is not new. So you have the parties with the press that they like. William Rufus King responded that Blair's character would compare gloriously to that of Clay. Henry Clay jumped to his feet and shouted, That is false. It is slanderous base and a cowardly declaration. And the senator knows it to be so. And when they became sort of heated in in a personal way, that's when the notes were exchanged. And from there, they went along the, the code duello. Now, I think for those of us in modern times listening, not accustomed to kind of dueling honor and things like that, that sounds like a pretty good exchange, right? He attacked Clay, Clay attacked back. Except when you listen to it, one word stands out, cowardly. And so on the Senate floor, King responds that, Mr. President, I have no reply to make, none whatever, but Mr. Clay deserves a response. So King's no longer talking about the floor of the Senate. King then wrote out a challenge to a duel and had another senator delivered it to Clay, who then realized he was in a bit of trouble with the words that he had said. But honor at that time demanded what it demanded. Clay and King selected seconds and prepared for an imminent encounter. Two senators dueling. It was prevented by the sergeant of arms of the Senate Uh, arresting Henry Clay and he having to post a bond to actually be free and to go about his business. Clay posted a $5,000 bond as assurance that we'd keep the peace. It wasn't quite over because King still insisted, all right, there's not going to be a duel, but insisted on an unequivocal apology. On March 14, 1841, that apology came. Clay apologized and noted that he would have been wiser to keep quiet despite the intensity of his feelings. King then gave his own apology to Clay, after which Clay walked to King's desk and said, King, give us a pinch of your snuff. King arose, both men shook hands, and applause engulfed the Senate. 
it's interesting. There's a nice parallel here between Henry Clay's downfall and folly in 1850, this, this monomaniacal commitment to the omnibus bill, and the conflict of 1841 that brought Henry Clay and William Rufus King to a near duel, because it really does reveal the partisan politics at, in operation during this period. I guess the big event in that that we think of is the Compromise of 1850. He's on the side of the Compromise? Yeah. And in fact, uh, if you know the history of 1850, you know that's a pivotal year for presidential history as well, as President Zachary Taylor, who was elected in 1848, takes office in 1849, dies suddenly of gastroenteritis uh, on actually my birthday. That's how I know it, July 9th. 1850, uh, setting the stage for Millard Fillmore to become president. Now, in the process, that also vacates the vice presidency and leaves open uh, the role that would have been played by Fillmore as vice president as the presiding officer as the Senate. So that's actually also where William Rufus King enters into the fray in this in the second half, really, of the debates around what became the Compromise 1850 as president pro tempore of the Senate, and he therefore was presiding. He was presiding officer over the next several months as the compromise got hashed out. And so while King didn't speak very often and didn't, his, his speeches are not particularly long when they are recorded in the congressional record, he was there as a kind of steadfast, supportive role to the efforts of compromise. And he, pl- he was sort of the go-between between the various factions that were trying to get their points across. I think of the first thing to think about is a, yeah, the, the 1850. Some people may think of it as a one bill sign, that's it. But 1850, at least as I understand it, is a, is kind of a log roll of, of various bills. Like, it's like, here's the California part. Here's the Fugitive Slave Act part. Here's the DC part. Yeah, that's right. In fact, the compromise of 1850 really is a, is a lesson in the kind of conciliatory and moderating practice that William Rufus King had been pioneering. And it's interesting too, because Henry Clay, mm-hmm who sort of fires the first shots in the legislative debate in January of that year, wants to, and and will g- literally go down in flames insisting on this omnibus, which which that was the kind of critical term for the multiple pieces of the compromise rolled together. And it was called an omnibus after the public transportation conveyance, literally a bus for everybody, like a, like a, right. a city bus, we would call it. So the omnibus was an insult, and that was the word that uh, Clay had levied at him for trying to do all the things, and, and his eight-part bill was was sort of uh, – it was a behemoth. And, and, and to your point, people could pick parts of it that they didn't like and therefore uh, could stand against the entire omnibus on principle. Clay couldn't see past that. Uh, and in fact, when the legislative effort fell apart, Clay essentially passed the baton to a much younger, more savvy operator in Stephen Douglas. Uh, and at the same time, King, in his role as, as the presiding officer, was there to see it stewarded through and in fact, to really encourage senators who didn't want to vote for a particular bill to not be present uh, when it came time. So Southerners could, for example, absent themselves from mm-hmm. the chamber when the vote came on the hated uh, aspects of the of the compromise, which typically meant the admission of California, uh, the Texas territorial boundary dispute, 
and things of that nature, whereas Northerners, and particularly some of the more firebrand abolitionists, could vacate the floor and not vote when it came time, say, for this enhanced fugitive slave law, which, which really did gall so many Northerners. And it was in this way, with both Democrats and Whigs, who could still be counted on to, to really vote in a partisan way, but increasingly were voting on sectional lines that the various bills came into being that we call the Compromise of 1850. I'm glad that you talked about that because I even talking about King only having 45 days as VP, it looks like he did mm. at least the president of the Senate function for a lot longer than that anyway. He, he was already kind of in that role, and that's important to note. There's a, a wonderful graphic from the Compromise of 1850 where – where King is included as one of the 19 men who made it happen. And what I like about it is he's correctly positioned because of his role. What's interesting is that his connection with James Buchanan was so great that the artist included James Buchanan in that picture as a kind of a sop to, to their relationship, even though uh, Buchanan was not in Congress at the time and actually was against the Compromise of 1850 in some degree. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. So I think even as King achieved one of his finest legislative moments, he was always sort of in the shadow of a James Buchanan politically and within the Democratic Party and certainly within the, with the passage of time and in our own time. Uh, he's been, I think, not given the kind of attention he deserves. My book is really the longest and first book published about his life. There's been a few articles and some encyclopedia pieces. There's some folks in Alabama who very much care about King and his legacy. So mm-hmm. I was really trying to do it justice with with my book. And he's just a nice guy, diplomat. People seem to like him. You know, he's considered many times for VP before he finally gets the nomination in 52. Is there any particular reason why he didn't get it earlier? Yeah, the the question of the vice presidential nomination is actually one of the key points of how the Democratic Party decides to meet for its first national convention. Mm-hmm. So that first Democrat, Democratic Party National Convention, DNC, uh, actually will be in 1832 to not really renominate Andrew Jackson, which was a given, but to pick a vice president because of the fallout over John C. Calhoun essentially turning against Jackson and this Fisher of the South Carolina Democratic Party that left Jackson really without a, a vice president he could count to. That convention, uh, interestingly enough, is where William Rufus King will attend as a delegate in 1832 and will institute a very important rule called the unit rule, which actually will require that two-thirds of the delegates at any future convention for either president or vice president these nominating conventions, as they were known, uh, would have to get that support. So not a majority vote, but a kind of supermajority, which over the ensuing years, as the unit rule was in place before uh, it was modified and ultimately transmuted into our primary system, led to compromise candidates offering often emerging in both the president and the vice presidential nod. Another thing it did was to really insist on a sectional balance between a northern candidate and a southern candidate. 
So going back to Jackson and Van Buren, you had that perfect balance. Van Buren from New York, Jackson from Tennessee. Uh, Van Buren was had been in the Jackson cabinet. He was Secretary of State for a time. He uh, resigned and was put over as as the minister to England, although the nomination didn't get through. So he was available and made for the vice president. And sort of following in the path of a John Adams, he then will be the next uh, vice president to to go on to become president. So by 1836, then again, the, the, commi- the nomination meets again. They choose a war hero in William, uh, sorry, uh, um, Richard, Richard Mentor Johnson. And by the time 1840 comes, the, actually, there's talk of replacing Johnson as VP. And it's that's the first time King is seriously considered for vice president. But the convention meets in 1840 and determines to continue with Johnson as Van Buren's vice president. But when Van Buren loses in 1840, really all, all bets are off. And while most people thought he would be renominated in 1844, Everyone thought that the vice president would be open in 1844. And so it's 1844 that the Democrats really start the infighting amongst themselves, jockeying for vice president. And you might be surprised to know the person William Rufus King was most likely fighting against was actually James K. Polk. So they're not friends or this is just a political dispute. It's an interesting point because part of what my book likes to look at is how political gossip circulates. Mm-hmm. And in the case of the Polk King, de- I don't know what to call it, uh, debate here, they, they use the newspapers and anonymous columns, which were very common back then, to attack mm-hmm. each other. And the nature of the attacks um, on William Rufus King during this 1844 debate gets very personal very quickly. And we know this because Aaron Brown, who had been a Jacksonian, sort of Jackson stalwart, and then sort of went on to the Polk wing of the Tennessee democracy, will write a very telling letter to Sarah Childress Polk, future first lady, James Polk's wife, talking about this effort and how King in the process was being belittled and ridiculed. And he uses very choice, salacious even gossip in this letter, which has been quoted subsequently by historians and he references not only king but his relationship with buchanan but in the process it becomes a moot point because after all van buren won't get the nomination and james k polk will emerge as the first dark horse out of a nominating convention and at that point now you've got a southern candidate for president and so king is no longer in the running for vice president he tries again in 1848 uh, as does Buchanan at this point. I should point out this is where Buchanan and King are trying to build a ticket with Buchanan as president and King as vice president. 48, though, goes, d- goes against both men. They're both in the running each for each office, but again, turned down. Instead, the Democrats pick Lewis Cass from, from Michigan uh, as their nominee instead of Buchanan. And so that leaves 1852 with another kind of unclear debate coming in and yet another dark horse emerges. But I think the key is Franklin Pierce is from New Hampshire. And so you've got the northern presidential candidate. So you're going to need a southern vice presidential candidate. And in the determination, King's name had been around long enough. He represented, the, the as he called it, uh, the Buchanan wing of the party, which was very powerful indeed, uh, as it contained southern Democrats as well as those from the mid-Atlantic. And he really was, at that point, uh, the most logical person to balance the ticket in 1852. Can't get into William 
Rufus King without talking about James Buchanan. And you can't talk about James Buchanan without talking about everybody's favorite subject, presidential rankings. And I think uh, Thomas Balsersky has a great take on the rankings, where he thinks, what he thinks about this person that he studied so much, James Buchanan. For most historians, Buchanan has always been the worst president in the rankings, <laughs> so to speak. And in my mind, I think Pierce should compete with that a little more. I almost feel like Pierce was the the real bumbler and Buchanan wasn't able to clean up Pierce's mess in a, and also did some bad things. A lot of talk. I see a lot of talk out there now because of Trump, particularly after the events at the Capitol. I have to punt a little bit, at least for my own self, and say, well, any presidency, we got to evaluating in the modern era, you got to you got to give it like at least a decade or so. And as someone who wrote a book about James Buchanan, I, I sort of have a kind of company line that James Buchanan does not deserve to be our worst president, but it's given, quite frankly, uh, a lot of interest to him from, from historians and the general public. And so I, I, I look at it from a couple of different ways. We can play the game, and that is what this is. This is a, a ranking game, mostly conducted by historians. And there are criterion involved, but at the end of the day, it's subjective. And it's based on partly our own politics and where we are. I, I thought I would share with your listeners some of the history here as a way of helping them understand that. The very first ranking that is considered legitimate and scholarly was by Arthur M. Schlesinger back in 1948. This is Senior, the father to the famous Arthur M. Schlesinger Jr., the two historians, father son. And I want to point out that while both Buchanan, Buchanan and Pierce were considered below average, they actually weren't considered failures in the original ranking. But you know who two presidents who were considered failures in that first 1948 ranking? Ulysses S. Grant and Warren Harding. Ah, uh, yes, yes. And so just think about that Grant, uh, who has really now emerged as, I think, a near great president in our lifetime. They were They were fixated on the corruption issue. Belknap and um, Orville mm -hmm. Babbick uh, and the Keylock scandal and things. But that's another one where I'm mixed on it, too. But you're absolutely you're right. You see this merging scholarship that was needed about, hey, this is a guy that passed the, the Ku Klux Klan Act and fought the original Klan when it first started and with federal troops. And he did a lot of good things. And yeah, he doesn't deserve to be the worst by any measure. There are some things that he did that might have been bad, um, subject to some interpretation. Even Harding's getting a little bit of uh, revitalization, you know, uh, in terms of uh, speaking out against lynching and... Yeah, that's a good point to say nothing of another sex scandal. D doesn't hurt interest uh, ever. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism. All while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right? is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like 
democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics. And NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, and, and I just back to how the rankings have changed, you know, um, another thing to point out is that there's a partisan element to this. We, we can't ignore for a minute that historians mm-hmm. have their own political views. But when you actually highlight those partisan views, uh, like the New York Times did in a poll uh, from 2018, which is not which may be, I think, the most mm-hmm. recent poll we have. And it did include Donald Trump. You know, of course, Democrats rank Donald Trump near the bottom. Uh, but in fact, Democrats, independents and Republicans also rank James Buchanan near the bottom. And, and it's been my you know, observation, Bruce, that kicking James mm-hmm. Buchanan sort of got it was has been a long standing mm-hmm. tradition in, in, in history. But using James Buchanan to kick Donald Trump has become an even more popular move of late. And I saw countless numbers of articles in the last several months here. Uh, you know, move aside, James Buchanan, you've got competition for the bottom, or Trump is clearly the worst president, and then it would be a kind of comparison between that. And it really misses the kind of depth and distancing that we we do need, regardless of how bad or how acute we may feel about Donald Trump. It's it just... This is a historical truism, and I will say this too. You and I will not mm-hmm. be the ones judging Donald Trump. It's people mm-hmm. way behind us in, in, in younger generations who are actually going to be the ones who become the historians who, who do the judging. So you know, I don't know if it's 10 years or 20 years or something, but I do know that over time you'll see a change in uh, all presidential rankings. And, and whether Buchanan, because he's so far from our own times, really will stay at the bottom or not is almost a kind of uh, besides the point, because right now the debate isn't really about Buchanan, it's about Trump. And I think that's unfortunate in a way because it, it takes us from the history. I agree. I have to punt a ball. Well, it's funny because in George W. Bush's Decision Points book, which mm. um probably in the remainder aisles these days, but it but it's I read it and it was I actually found the book quite interesting, um where he taught he doesn't do a full biography of himself, but he talks about a few decisions that he made. One one of the first things he says is don't judge a president for twenty years. Now you might be sorry. He said hey, we're, now it's twenty twenty one and we're just at you know it's twenty years from the first year, so I can start judging by the first year. Uh, you might get historians in the future who say. Gosh, guys, though, you needed to change the culture. You right. were, you were, you were getting to this kind of like rigid PC culture. And that guy came along and gave America the, the zing that it needed. Now, I'm not saying I agree with that at all. I'm just saying that's a possible future historian take. We just don't know what, cause they'll have the ability to assess all the things that they feel America needed and, but to keep it to be canon, unionist, right? I mean, if I'm not wrong, I mean, there's a guy that really wanted the union to stay together. Maybe his crimes are a little, his crimes could be described as passivity. Oh, the other argument I think to make would be canon, the easiest one would be, you know, what would you do as president in 1860? <laughs> I mean, it's we make it seem easy. Yeah, it's 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 a, it, let's unpack it for a second. I mean, Buchanan is correctly held to account, and so is Franklin Pierce. We haven't really mentioned where Pierce hmm. lands in this. He's just one notch usually above Buchanan, but it has a lot to do, I think, with the devastation wrought by the Civil War. 
I mean, one way to play it would be to say Lincoln's greatness is is a large function of what he does to lead the nation through the war and to win the war. I mean, again, mm. great presidents win wars. Buchanan's failure is essentially to not be Abraham Lincoln. And anyone who stands in the shadow of Abraham Lincoln is going to be overlooked, dismissed, and and relegated to the, the basement of American history. And I think the other person on the other side to throw in for a minute would be Andrew Johnson, uh, because he's another mm. one of the bottom five in my book, uh, if you were to ask me where he stands. And again, on the other side of Lincoln, and, and but also, again, a flawed individual who made uh, matters much worse for himself in his term. So if you look at Pierce, Buchanan, and and Johnson as a trio, their terribleness in, in large part stems from Lincoln's greatness. And it may well be a symbiotic relation that one props up the other. Uh, we need a terrible president before and after Lincoln to make his greatness that much greater. It's hard to be great uh, unless you have failure. FDR, Hoover, it's a fun game, but that's what it is. And And it's great to bring up Andrew Johnson because with Andrew Johnson – I believe you do have more activity rather than passivity to, and you can really make a case for him as last because he was actually causing problems in the South and Reconstruction. Getting away from, from the ranking, the other thing that a lot of people talk about Buchanan with is his relationship with William Rufus King. You, right. you alluded to it earlier, becoming a political issue. A lot of people focus on it because um, there's there's discussion that perhaps we had our first gay president, and even that King and Buchanan possibly were a couple. They did live together. It's a good question to try to find a way to approach, like, I don't want to be gossipy about it, but at the same time, it's important to know, I think, for a lot of people, because even if he's not anybody's ideal of a president to be like the first gay president or a model president— if he was, it just points out how common a lifestyle it was, that this isn't something new, that this isn't this occurred through history, and we've just um we're better at tolerating a bit now than we may have been. Um so yeah, if you could talk all about that, because I know that was a focus of your book, and I'll mention that book, which is um uh Thomas Balsersky's Bosom Friends, The Intimate World of James Buchanan and William Rufus King. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that intro, Bruce. And it, it does get to what draw, drew me to the topic. So let's just start right there. Any uh, attention that's given to history is a good thing at the macro level. But even within these forgotten and dismissed presidents, it, there can be something valuable about it. So I'm actually not in the camp of uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater and saying, well, of course, you know, we, we could look at different standards, different terminology. I'm willing to consider all that to sort of flatten it out and to talk about homosexuality, same-sex attraction, identity, all of that. I do think after sort of first situating the context of what was possible between men in the 19th century and then studying the biography of both Buchanan and King, that the evidence does not allow for the kind of definitive assessment that some people would want. And there is something of a double standard in the history of sexuality because there's a sort of assumption of heterosexuality until proven otherwise. And mm -hmm. given the taboo and given uh, the ways in which the closet as a force of repression worked for many gay people, and still does, we should point out, mm -hmm. we can understand how in the 19th century there could be people who were attracted to men who never acted on it. 
And there could mm -hmm. be people who did act on it, and the evidence might be there, but it also might be erased in some way. So the problem of evidence is a huge one in trying to piece together a relationship. And as a historian, I have very high standards of evidence, and I typically like traditional evidence, and I don't want to uh, necessarily make a case I can't support. Mm -hmm. All that being said, it comes back to William Rufus King, because of the letters between King and Buchanan, many more survive from King to Buchanan than vice versa, and there's reasons for that I discuss in my book. So when we read that correspondence, we're getting William Rufus King's voice. We're hearing King in his conversation with Buchanan. And of all the most intimate details in the correspondence, therefore, it's out of King's pen and not Buchanan's. So I think there's a way in which King is more likely uh, the one we see attraction and intimacy. And, and I would say if there's an identity there, it's repressed in William Rufus King, but it's more clearly emerging at times than in James Buchanan's life. And Buchanan, who was at one time engaged and did pursue romantic courtship, Whatever he felt about uh, both men and women, he was sort of able enough and savvy enough, one could argue, to at least half seriously pursue courtship and romance throughout his life. And he was possibly, therefore, equally savvy in cultivating William Rufus King and his affections and attractions. And my, very, my reading in the book is that it was much more of a one-way relationship, King being attracted to Buchanan on multiple levels and Buchanan treating him like a brother and a platonic friend. And that's why in the conclusion, I turn to this idea that we, we have now in our modern society that straight men and gay men can in fact be friends and very close. And it doesn't have to have any kind of rupture or any kind of um, discomfort in those relationships. It can be uh, the kind of, of friendships that has a non-sexual arousal component. And so you know, that's 2021. And so to think about it in 1800s terms, it depending how overt it could have been, and I don't think it would have been given both men's standing and, mm -hmm. and place in life, I think very likely you had a chaste platonic friendship without, of course, I'm not trying to discount uh, what could have happened elsewhere in each man's lives. But this particular relationship, I think, straddled the border of what I call intimate male friendship. There's also, uh, I hear discussed a lot, elements of culture that we in 2021 perhaps can't understand where men wrote letters differently they, they had right. their their own ways of talking which we maybe can't interpret without help yeah and the best way i can describe it is intimacy as a, even a word has changed its meaning so these these 19th century politicians cultivated intimacy with other men and this is this is true of men who were married as well as Buchan like Buchanan and King who were unmarried. They were bachelors in their lifetime. But they actually understood that personal friendship involved the sharing of secrets, sort of opening mm -hmm. up to, to one another, you might say. And they were writing in the 19th century. They were using a vocabulary that is different than ours. And you're so right to point that out that we have to go back and think about those words in context. And we also have to go and find evidence of those words being used in other situations in their own correspondence. What I found was that William Rufus King especially would use certain phrases, not just with Buchanan, but with many of his correspondents that really tried to endear him to these political operators, whether they be back in Alabama or in Washington, D.C. So King, I think, was very skilled at communication with other men, and he put himself out there in an emotional way, I would say, whereas Buchanan tended to be more open and intimate with women. 
uh, in his mm-hmm. correspondence and less so with men. And I, this is now b- based on my reading of thousands of James Buchanan letters. I sort of see how he writes and, and to whom he writes. Nothing written by Buchanan about King remains available to historians. There's one exception, a single letter. Buchanan writes, I envy Colonel King the pleasure of meeting you and would give anything in reason to be of, of the party for a single week. I am now solitary and alone, having no companion in the house with me. I have gone a-wooing to several gentlemen, but have not succeeded with any one of them. I feel that it is not good for man to be alone, and should not be astonished to find myself married to some old maid who can nurse me when I am sick, provide good dinners for me when I am well, and not expect from me any very ardent or romantic affection. And I would point out that we, we have a letter from Buchanan, not to King that people quote very often, but it was actually to an intermediary, Cornelia Roosevelt. And it was this letter and is one of this letter that gets cited the most as evidence of a relationship between the two men. And I think it's often missed that Buchanan was actually writing to a woman. One of the uh, distant relatives of that family, or is it one of the New Orleans Roosevelt's, or or is it a just a just another? No, it's 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 those Roosevelt. She married in. She was Cornelia Van Ness. She married James Roosevelt, who I think puts him in second cousin territory to Theodore. And is anything to say about uh, slavery and and King? I mean, he's a Southerner. He's coming from Alabama. Other than you know, of course, I could say anyone who had anything to do with the. Uh, compromise of 1850 means they were running the wrath of Calhoun and Davis, even if only for that vote, mm-hmm. even even if it was just a few dirty looks at the mess hall or, or what. But um, obviously, any involvement in that in that compromise at all led to a free state on the West Coast. But other than that, is there anything to say about him uh, on the slavery issue? Yeah, there's a lot to say about slavery, and, and, and there's different ways to frame the relationship of Buchanan and King. You could, in the first sentence about it, say it was entirely about preserving the institution of slavery. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a sort of a, a baseline truth. Uh, yet there's also the biographical aspect of King's life. He's born into a slave society in North Carolina, uh, in Fayetteville. His family will relocate to Alabama for the, the, the economic opportunities of creating a cotton plantation, which, of course, relies on chattel slavery and widespread uh, enslavement of African-Americans. He had black valets or manservants who accompanied him both in D.C. and in his time in Europe. Uh, And he literally lived and died in a slave culture that put white people like himself at the very top of the hierarchy. So there's no getting around the sort of foundational aspect of slavery to King's life and to the entire Southern way of life at that time. I think what's what's sort of fascinating is how he convinced James Buchanan uh, to become a, a sort of a supporter of Southern principles, as he called it, and how successful Buchanan was in doing so. And it's that contribution that King brought uh, to Buchanan's political career through the institution of slavery that makes slavery not just King's in sort of uh, – entire basis of life and politics, but also Buchanan's. Other than than what we discussed today, is there mm-hmm. do, is there something we miss? What else do you think is important for people to know about Rufus, William Rufus King, but also uh, James Buchanan too, I guess? 
Well, I think the first thing I want to say is that William Rufus King and Rufus King are different people. <laughs> and I can't yes, tell you the number of times yes, yes. I hear that. Rufus <laughs> King, ironically, is another American politician and an important one. He attends the Continental Congress and signs the, uh, the, the U.S. Constitution and so forth. And William Rufus King, of course, is the overlooked one. You know, William Rufus King has been so forgotten and dismissed that not just do we sometimes not even know his name, but his picture. Uh, if you go on the internet, very often you'll see a picture of William Rufus King that's not William Rufus King. It's actually the New York politician Fernando Wood, who looks a little bit like William Rufus King, but they were not the same person. So I can't tell you the number of articles and, and you know blog posts and other gossip, let's call it, where it's, it's Fernando Wood's picture uh, instead of the actual William Rufus King. And, you know, the problem is this. He, he, his papers, many of which were destroyed, I think, during the Civil War. Selma was one of the final battles uh, of, of the Civil War, in fact, and, and I think the last in Alabama, which is very interior uh, c- city. And it was actually a, a prime target because it had a munitions factory. So the Battle of Selma likely brought Union soldiers into King's Bend and we think destroyed some of the personal property, if, if not some of the letters. But William Rufus King and his family are very, and his descendants, rather, through nieces and nephews, definitely preserved uh, their uncle's legacy. And there's some wonderful materials at the Alabama Department of History and Archives um, in Montgomery, where I did my research, that tells a story of how King fits into the founding of Alabama. He was the founder of the city of Selma. He was said to have given it its name from the poetry of the 18th century. And uh, King was very much sort of one of the pioneers of the Democratic Party in Alabama, in the South, and really before the Civil War. And so he should be included in the same list as a, as, um, a Henry Clay, a Daniel Webster, a John C. Calhoun. Well, that's great. We're talking to Thomas Belsersky, who is Associate Professor of History at Eastern Connecticut State University. Thomas, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Bruce. Enjoyed it. I want to thank Thomas Belsersky for coming on. Again, his book is Bosom Friends, The uh, Intimate World of James B. Cannon and William Rufus King. Different guy from Rufus King, of course. Different guy from Fernando Wood. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics. We've got a link to the Patreon there if you want to help support us. And uh, if you do like the program, please tell someone about it. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.